0: All right, Luke chapter 16. and uh, Luke 16. Verse 19. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. This is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus is telling this story. So... But let's begin with a very safe presupposition. When Jesus is speaking, it behooves us to listen very good. Yes. and to take him at his word and understand that he says what he means and means what he says, all right? And uh, the scripture, contrary to popular opinion, is not an enigma, right. all right? And the scripture can be understood. A vast portion of the scripture is shallow enough for a lamb to wade. Though there are places that might drown a giraffe, most of the scripture is easy enough to understand at first glance if we're willing to believe what it says. Right. Okay. So Luke chapter 16 and verse 19, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Abraham's bosom is paradise. That's right? not a play on words. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. He's Father Abraham, right? It's out of his... He's, he's the progenitor of the, of, the, of the Jewish people, all right? And so, paradise, the place where those uh, who were dying in the faith at this time, when they died, they went into Abraham's bosom. Now, this is prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Right. After the resurrection... This changes somewhat, but, but, but in concept it's the same thing. You have the abode of those who are in faith after death and the abode of those who die in condemnation after death. Right. You'll notice in the passage there's no third place. There's, there's no fourth place. Right. There's Abraham's bosom and then there's what we find in verse 23. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. He didn't say I'm tormented by something like flame. He did not use allegorical language. He gave no impression whatsoever that this is to be taken any way other than literally. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And Beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot... Neither can they pass to us which would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, What he means by Moses and the prophets is he means the scripture. He means the writings of the Old Testament. Moses being the law and the prophets being the the prophets in the history. Okay? So I want you to notice this. This is really powerful. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham. But if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said it to him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. In other words, a miracle won't do it if the Word of God won't. Amen. We have nothing greater at our disposal than the Word of God from which to preach. Amen. And it's the Word of God that people need to hear, that needs to be emphasized, that needs to be read, understood, spoken, considered, and followed. The Scripture, not our traditions, not our ecclesiastical hang-ups, not our family preferences, the authority of the scripture. that's the only thing that'll keep us out of the ditches, right? So let's pray and, and i want to uh, I want to give you I, I want to talk about hell for a, a little bit, and uh, I want to give you four reasons to talk uh, that we that we should talk about hell, four reasons to think about and talk about, consider. The subject of hell. Somebody has to do it. Because sure. most won't. Right. All right? Most TV, TV preachers not going to do it. It doesn't pay. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. I don't do it in an abrasive way. That, I, I'm not doing it to be a smart aleck or a punk. I do it to be responsible. Okay? Because there are other things I'd rather do. I'd rather preach something that would make you say, Gosh, wasn't that little guy great? <laughs> but that's not what I'm here to do. Amen. So... Let's pray. Lord, we pray for help. I pray that you will use the scripture to work in hearts. It's such an honor to preach to these people. What a beautiful crowd on a snowy day. We pray that you'll work in hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. An evangelical preacher named Erwin Luther said this. He said, admittedly, hell is an unpleasant topic. Unbelievers disbelieve in it. Most Christians ignore it. Even the staunchly biblical diehards are often silent out of embarrassment. And people are uncomfortable about the subject. They don't want to hear about it. Matter of fact, you'll often hear this term, you know, that guy's one of those hellfire and damnation preachers. Well, let's understand something. If the scripture teaches about a place called hell, where people go forever, where they're damned forever, then the only kind of good preacher is a hellfire and damnation preacher. Any other kind of preacher is a preacher who is neglecting his duty. He's falling short of his responsibility to preach what the Bible calls the whole counsel of God. Maybe if more preachers would preach about a hot hell and a gracious Savior, our nation would be in a little better shape than it's in. But that's, that's another sermon. Jesus Christ, who is... Loved by conservatives and liberals alike, it seems. Now, there's a little something to that. (laughs) Erwin Lutzer said, if everybody loves your Jesus, it's because you've made him something that he's not. Because they did crucify him, if you'll remember. They crucified him because his message was offensive to their nature and to their religion and to their tradition, see. But, There are those who love the teachings of Jesus as long as you keep it to the golden rule and to the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, you keep it in all of that social gospel oriented stuff where we can feed the poor and habitat for humanity and make the world a better place and and let's all just get together and like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony and oh, it feels so good. They love that Jesus but the Jesus that wags his finger in the face of the religious people and calls them vipers and liars and hypocrites. Yeah. I don't even know if they're aware of that Jesus. <laughs> Jesus who overturns the money tables and drives the money changers out of the temple, the Jesus that displays anger. Yeah. Yes. The Bible says, by the way, your King James Bible says, it's a, it's a sin to be angry with your brother without a cause why modern versions remove the phrase without a cause. If you take that phrase without a cause out, you make Jesus to be a sinner. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus was angry with them. Right? Y'all with really? me? leave that Bible alone. Let the Bible be the authority that we submit to it. Jesus spoke of hell. You've heard this many times. Every preacher who's ever preached a sermon about hell has almost always said, gratuitously, that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. But it's also interesting to note that Jesus spoke of hell more than any other Bible character. Seemed to be on his mind a lot. He brought it up a lot. And here in this context, he's dealing with the Pharisees who were on a straight road to hell. The group of people that he said, fear not those who are able to destroy the body, but fear him that is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. That's the Jesus that we're talking about the Christ of the Scripture, who came not to mollycoddle the sinner, but to save the sinner from from his sins. Let's see, good. September twenty third, nineteen eighty. I was thirteen years old, and I went to a a youth rally, and I had no idea what was coming. I had no idea what God was going to do in my heart. I, I was. Uh, Uh, My my mom went and got me out of football practice early, which I thought was a tragedy. The team was dependent upon me. I was going to be, that 7th grade football team or that 8th grade team was very important to the world. And if I was going to be the next Joe Namath, I needed to practice. Nope, she makes me go to church, and I go to this youth rally, and I sat on the second to the last row right back there in that section. And I was instantly interested in the sermon. And he was a man who was preaching these youth crusades all over America and back his back, well, 1980. And he he was his crusades were called Capture America, if I remember correctly. So there were many youth groups there that night, and the place was full. And he preached a sermon asking the question Is there a literal hell? Is there or not? And he shared some anecdotes in that message, one of which I thought was particularly arresting. When he spoke of a man who was to go to the gallows and be hanged, he was going to die. And all the way to the gallows, the minister spoke to him about the Lord and about the gospel and about life after death. They reached the gallows and this man had the rope uh, placed about his neck and they asked if he had any last words. He said, yeah, yeah, I do. I'd like to say one thing. And he turned to the minister, and he addressed him, and he said, sir, if I believed as you say you believe that there's a place called hell, I would crawl on one coast and throw my hands and knees from one coast of the city of London to the other to warn people about this place. So it kind of makes you scratch your head, doesn't it, when you really think about it? What has happened to hell? Either the Bible is true and it was true in 1850 when preachers preached about hell, either it was true then and it's true now, or it wasn't any truer then than it is now. One of the two, and if the Bible's not true, why are we here tonight? We could do good with any number of organizations It would be much less demanding than a New Testament church. Y'all follow me? I mean... Is it real or not? One particular author says that hell seems to have fallen on hard times. And he tells us that a poll was taken in the United States in 1978 and revealed that over 70% of those interviewed said that they believed in hell. Eleven years later, just eleven years A Newsweek survey, again, taken in the United States, produced a figure of just 58%. So we go from 70% to 58% in 11 years. That's a pretty significant drop. A poll conducted in Australia in 1988 indicated that only 39% believed in hell. While in 1989, a Gallup poll taken in Britain for the Sunday Telegraph revealed that no more than 24% of those questioned did so. Let me tell you something, all right? It doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not. Right. If there's a hell, there's a hell. Right. And if you don't believe in it, you will. Yeah. And so that's what we have to come to grips with. Now, and here's where you sort of want to ask yourself, are you trying to scare me? Look. I'm just going to say this. If there is a place where people go to hell forever and they pay the penalty for their sins for an eternity separated from God, if that doesn't scare you, you need a psychiatrist. I can't scare you. By the way, being scared is reasonable. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The first step to knowing something worth knowing in this world is knowing that God is God. And He's not only the God who gave His Son to die for man's sins, but He is the God who will judge man's sins. He is both a God of love and He is a God of holiness. He is a God of simmering, ever eternally existing wrath. He is a God who does not change. He is the God God who is called the judge of all the earth and shall not the judge of all the earth do right. right. Yes, sir. That's the God of the scripture. Yeah. The God of the Old Testament has as much grace as the God of the New Testament has judgment. Same God. Yeah. He said, I'm the Lord, I change not. Right. So you can't bring that up. That's a tired thing that people throw out who don't really know much about the Bible. A mm. lot of grace in the Old Testament. A lot of overlooking sin in the Old Testament. A lot of forbearance. And in the New Testament, there's an entire book called Revelation that is a demonstration of the impending judgment of God on the world. Okay. It's not an intellectual issue, by the way. Okay. I come from North Alabama. My people are cotton pickers, country people. We're bluegrass pickers. My neck is red down under this collar. You can't see it, but it is. Okay? So I like old fashioned spit slinging, shingle pulling, window rattling, preaching. But I also have read a handful of books. Okay? I'm fairly educated. I'd say maybe really educated for my, my, my particular profession. Okay? Doesn't have anything to do with education. I've heard uneducated preachers make light of the truth. And I've heard very profound men hold the truth in high regard. It's not an intellectual issue. It's a heart issue. That's why Jesus said, Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe. This truth of hell is a very inconvenient truth. Very uncomfortable for us. Mm -hmm. What I'm trying to do tonight is not browbeat you. I think you know what I believe. But my job tonight is to challenge you from the Scripture about what the Scripture says about hell and let you make a real bona fide decision based upon what the Scripture says and not just what someone says on a talk show. David Lodge said that at some point in the 1960s, hell disappeared. No one could say for certain when this happened, First it was there, then it wasn't. Different people became aware of the disappearance of hell at different times. Some realized that they had been living for years as though hell did not exist, without having consciously registered its disappearance. Others realized that they had been behaving out of habit, as though hell were still there, though in fact they had ceased to believe in its existence long ago. The American church historian Martin Marty, a professor at the University of Chicago Divinity School, was preparing a Harvard lecture on the subject, and he consulted the indexes of several scholarly journals dating back over a period of 100 years to 1889 and failed to find a single entry about hell. His conclusion was that hell disappeared and no one noticed. I heard a man say once if I believed like you people say you believe about hell I wouldn't be watching any more ball games I wouldn't be watching any more TV preachers I'd be too busy warning people about hell Now, while I'm not opposed to watching ball games and I think there's a time and a place for all sorts of things I do believe that all of us who name the name of Christ could be a little more motivated about telling people about Christ and sharing with them the gospel and warning them about an awful place one more quote from gordon kaufman harvard divinity school said today hell is theology's h word a subject too trite for serious scholarship you know people with patches on their sleeves and the pipes and too serious <laughs> we can't believe in hell why we donate to the civitan club get out of my face either hell is real or it's not real Nobody's impressed with your aristocracy. Nobody's impressed with your vocabulary or your foundations or how much money you've laid up or what kind of car you drive. Either hell is real or it's not real. And if you believe the Bible, you've got to be a Bible believer because it's clear in the Scripture that there's a place called hell amazes me at 30 years of preaching. Funeral on top of funeral, on top of funeral, on top of funeral. I've never preached a funeral where somebody got up and said, man, I love old Uncle Bob. He's in hell, but I sure did love him. Right. Yep. Nobody goes to hell, I guess. Mm. Good. At every funeral, everybody gets preached into heaven. Everybody went to a better place. It's interesting. We're all willing to believe in a better place. You know he's in a better place. Is he? Really? Are we talking about the same guy? Four things I said. From our text, I want to say this. Number one, I think we should talk about hell for a few minutes tonight because it is a real place with actual torment. Luke 16, we begin with verse 19 where it says, There was a certain rich man. We find the name Lazarus in verse 20. There was a certain rich man. We find no allegorical language in the text. There are those left-leaning commentators and theologians that want desperately to make this a parable. But it's not a parable. It doesn't read like a parable. It's not introduced as a parable. Most of the parables, if not all of them, are at some place introduced as a parable. And they don't use the names of characters. This is a specific man a specific scenario, a specific anecdote that Jesus uses to demonstrate the reality of hell and some very important truths related to it. The law of first mention is an interesting thing. The first time you find a particular word or subject in the Bible, it will very often give you some noteworthy, foundational truth about that particular subject. The first time, you don't have to turn there. if you, you can if you want, but I'm going to try to move on. But the first time the word hell shows up in the Bible, we find it in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 22. And it says this, "...for a fire is kindled in mine anger, and shall burn unto the lowest hell, and shall consume the earth with her increase." and set on fire the foundations of the mountains first reference to hell in the old testament fire is associated with it the first time we find the word hell in the new testament a very familiar verse matthew chapter 5 and verse 22 Which says, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. But whosoever shall say to his brother Racha shall be in danger of the counsel. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. First time hell shows up in the New Testament? It's associated with literal fire. Fire in this subject is literal. It's interesting, the mad dash that the left-leaning preachers make toward removing hell or fire from hell. Matthew 13 is a parable. I want you to notice something in Matthew 13. We're going to slow down just a little bit here. It'll feel a little bit like a Bible study. By the way... You you did not come in here to hear me tell stories. It's the scripture that is authority. It's the scripture that counts. Matthew 13 and verse 36. Watch this. Here's what Jesus is doing here. He's explaining a parable that he's previously given. And he's telling us what each of the items in the parable represent. Okay? Verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitudes away and went into the house and His disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Now, I want to point something out. The parable is not meaningless because it's a parable. Oh, no, no, no. It means something. And when you get Christ's commentary on what that parable means, it's pretty serious. But let's go on. Verse 40. As therefore the terrors are gathered, and what are these next words? Read them with me. Burned in the fire. So shall it be in the end of this world. The son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. You notice everything in the parable is likened into something else except fire. You know what fire is? <laughs> it's fire. It's literal fire. Fire. Now, if that were not interesting enough, Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 47 is a prophecy that tells us that many would one day call the record of hell a parable. Ezekiel 20 and verse 47 says, And say to the forest of the south, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will kindle a fire in thee and it shall devour every green tree in thee and every dry tree. The flaming flame shall not be quenched and all the faces from the south to the north shall be burned therein and all flesh shall see that I, the Lord, have kindled it. It shall not be quenched. Then said I, Ah, Lord, they said of me, Doth he not speak parables? You see, man has a way of wanting God to be like them. You remember in Psalm 50, the Lord said, Thou thought that I was altogether like unto thee. Yeah. God's not like you. Right. He's not like me. So I thought the Bible says we're creating his image. The Bible says Adam was creating his image. Yeah. When Adam sinned, Adam was then corrupted in the fall. And that's a whole other theological sermon. But you and I are not like God. We don't think like God. It's our responsibility if we're going to be godly to set ourselves aside, our own thinking aside, and to submit ourselves to the authority of the scripture. That is the only chance we have of becoming like God, is becoming scriptural in our thinking. And you may, you may find a way around a literal fire in hell, but you won't reading this book. You'll have to do it some other way. It'll have to be some preacher that doesn't believe this book. It'll have to be some minister that's more interested in his religious programming than he is the scripture. It'll have to be some religious organization that's more interested in what they're accomplishing and the money they're raising and the programs they're trying to, uh, to uh, put forth than they are the authority of and the, and, and the agenda of the scripture. But Here's what I'm trying to say. If you read the scripture and believe the scripture, you have to believe in hellfire. Amen. There's no wiggle room. Yeah. We're still in Luke 16 and we're still early. Verse 24, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. So in our story we have a rich man, Lazarus, who fared sumptuously every day. That means he enjoyed his life. He ate what he wanted to eat. He was well off, well to do, wore the finest clothes and life was good for, Lazarus, for the rich man. But Lazarus was a beggar who laid at his gate full of sores and the dogs licked his sores. He was the worst possible sight. To a dignified human being. Begging crumbs from the rich man's table. Right. They both die. The rich man wakes up in hell. Now, by the way, he, listen, he didn't go to hell because he's rich. Yeah. Not a sin to be rich. Right. Now, I know that's common thinking all across the South. All of us good old boys think if you're rich, you've got to be crooked. That's not true. I've met a lot of crooked poor people. <laughs> okay. You just call them not very smart. <laughs> if you're crooked, at least you'd be rich, right? Torment is a part of this experience that the rich man wakes up to. and it's ex- Torment is defined as extreme pain, anguish, the utmost degree of misery. So here we have hell, which is literal fire, literal, extreme, inexplicable torment. Verse 25 says, But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Son, remember. How about those words? The guy in hell has a memory. So the idea that we die as a dog and we go back to the dirt like a dog and we cease to exist, annihilated, That's not taught in the scripture. Here's a man who's died and he's alive, he's aware, he's perpetually tormented and he has a memory. That's what the scripture teaches. His memory. There's no help for him. Hopelessness. His torment is his plight it's what it's going to be second thing about hell second reason to talk about hell is because when we die things change dramatically and irrevocably when you die let's say that a different way things change dramatically and irrevocably when you die not trying to be fancy irrevocably means that you can't revoke it you can't get it back you can't change it you can't turn it around I mean, once you die, that's it. Right? Right? Uh, We all raise our kids. I I don't know about you. Uh, I've tried to raise good kids, and I'm thankful for them. Boy, it's hard to spoil them and and be there for them and teach them about consequences at the same time. It's just so difficult. It's so hard sometimes to stand back and say, I'm going to let you have this one. I'm going to let you live with the consequences of this one. Yeah. When my son realized that speeding tickets were connected to insurance payments, <laughs> we, got, we got that. All of a sudden, he slowed it down. I was riding that with him a couple years ago, and I'm thinking, let's go. And I, I looked over, and he's driving like 55 miles an hour, and I said, I almost said, What, what are you, grandpa? And then I remembered. And I said, nah, I'm not saying anything. I'm just going to kind of sit over here and take her easy. Yeah. Consequences. When you die, there will be consequences. You can't change it. You don't get a do-over when you die. So I thought God is loving. He is loving. That's why he sent his son to die for you so you can get saved right now. That's why he continues to wait and tarry his coming. The Bible says... God is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why He waits. That's why He hasn't returned yet, because He waits because He's long-suffering. See, God is loving. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. But when you die, that's it. The English Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Shun all views of future punishment that would make it appear less terrible. Anything that would water down the truth of hell, that's not a Bible teaching. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's the teaching of infidelity. That's a modernistic teaching. That's not a Bible teaching. R.G. Lee, the pastor of the Baptist Church there at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, probably one of the 20th century's great Baptist preachers. R.G. Lee said three seconds in hell would do more for a man than three years in any seminary. Cemetery, seminary. Sorry. It really was a slip. Let me say it again. Did y'all get that? Three seconds in hell versus three years in any seminary. Let me encourage you to not be lulled into a drowsy state of unconcern by the materialistic lies of our times. Things will not always continue as they are today. We'll be done here in just a minute. Don't, don't, Don't die yet, okay? We're almost done but we've got to get a complete look at this. Materialism is one of the things that affects us right here. Yeah. Is We don't believe in things anymore that we can't see, touch, smell, taste. And what's the other one? What did I miss? Five senses. Here? Whatever, yeah, you get it. Because we're materialistic. We've got to be able to put our hands on it. Right. We have to sense it or it's not real but the bible's very clear that god is the creator christ the preeminent one is the creator of both the visible and the invisible Amen. see so there's much more reality than what you and i can see it's there but we've watched so much star trek and so much star wars and as the world turns that we live in a in a world of complete self-defeating fiction Hebrews 9, 27 tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Listen, I wouldn't even bother with this sermon if man died like a dog and went to the dust like a dog. If he died like a brute and ceased to exist. But the Bible says after that, the judgment. You will stand before God. You will answer to God. You won't won't be able to bring up all the people that have done you wrong. You won't be able to bring up your neighbor that built a doghouse on your property line. You won't be able to bring up your boss who didn't give you the promotion. You won't be able to bring up the coach who made you play on second string when you were really the best. He won't bring up all the things in life that you love to talk about. He won't mention your mother-in-law, although you're certain she and hell must have something to do with one another. He won't bring up any of that stuff. He'll be you and him. And there will be one subject, and that is what was done with your sins. Right. You either die in Christ or in your sins. Right. There's no other choice. Yeah. That's why Jesus said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. There's only two groups. There's no third group. There's no middle zone. There's no almost saved, kind of saved, on my way to being saved. You are either in Christ or you're out of Christ. You're either on your way to heaven or you're on your way to hell and the second you die, friend, it is done. That's Bible. You know, That saved stuff, we're too sophisticated for that these days, aren't we? But the Bible still talks about being saved or lost. Okay. Third reason I think we ought to talk about hell. What we've said is that hell is a real place with literal torment. And then we've said that things change dramatically and irrevocably when you die. So you need to seriously think about it. I lost my father in June. I've never really been that aware of the severity and significance of death. Of, even after pastoring all these years, it just didn't hit me like it hit me when I watched my father die. Very real. It forces you to think about but what, what, what kind of shape do I want to be when I die? What do I want my kids to be thinking? What kind of bats do I want in their belfry the day I die? So that makes me want to treat them in ways that will affect the relationship we're going to have when I die. You know, it's not just the kids honoring the parents. Sometimes the parents got to honor the kids. That's a free sermon for you out right there. Y'all with me? So I'm just trying to make death real and the consequences because they are. Right. And if we were aware of that, we can live today aware of what's going to happen then. Right. third reason why I want to talk about hell is because Mercy is available now. I'm not just some kind of a mean spirit. I'm not a mean-spirited person at all. If I was mean, I'd come in here and tell you something slick and hope you gave me a good love offering. Mm. I would say keep the love offering. Let me tell you the truth. A kind person is a person that tells you the truth, even if it's hard. That's kindness. Not lying. So you'll like them. You with me? Right. Good. What if you went to the doctor and the, you had some kind of cancer that might could be dealt with, but he didn't tell you because he just didn't want to say it? <laughs> I just couldn't tell you. Yeah. Right. Right. What kind of doctor would that be? What kind of preacher is it that doesn't talk about hell? Yeah. Okay. Verse 24, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Well, we know he gets no mercy. The only mercy he's praying for is the tip of, La- of, t- of, of Lazarus' finger dipped in water and to cool his tongue. But verse 25 says, But Abraham said, Son, remember thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and thou art tormented in thy lifetime. You want mercy? It's available now. Mercy's available right now. You you can get it today. So the Bible says today is the day of salvation. I love that that chapter, Ephesians chapter 2. Man, does that ever say a lot. Ephesians chapter 2 says and you have ye quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince and power of the air the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. Now friends, why would Jesus die? He died to save us from our sins. Why such a horrible death? That horrible death that Christ died bearing the sins of the world was not just so we could have a good day or so we could learn how to not be selfish or so that we could learn to help the poor pick themselves up by their bootstraps. Jesus died because there's no hope. For the sinner without God becoming flesh and dying for our sins. That's what the Bible says. He hath to make him sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The only way we can go to heaven is to have the righteousness of God. And the only way to get the righteousness of God is for Jesus to die in our place. That's the gospel. You want to know how bad God hates sin? Look at Calvary. See Jesus on the cross. That's how God feels about sin. So the idea that we would think that God will sweep our sin under the rug because it's not big sin is even that much more offensive. But here's what we're saying, friends. There is mercy now. I'm not giving you just bad news. But is the good news really good news if there's no bad news? I mean, if there really wasn't a hell where sinners go who die in their sins, why do I care that God loves me? The average person's attitude is, well, yeah, if there is a God, of course he loves me. That's his job. (laughs) He's supposed to love me. But, oh, friend, we've missed it. The way we should see it is the way the songwriter saw it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? What? A wretch like me. Or I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Man. Number four, final reason. We ought to talk about hell and preach about hell and think about hell and do so more than just tonight is because people are alive now, tonight, They're alive right now who are going to hell, and they don't have to. There's no reason for them to go to hell. Jesus died for their sins. Jesus bore the sin price, bore bore the penalty of sin, all of it, the whole thing. Why do you suppose a person would choose to go to hell? I guess there's a number of reasons. I would say it would be three. The Bible says to love not the world. neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in it. And the world is defined by three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Lust of the flesh is the desire to do things. Some people go to hell because they like what they're doing. But they don't want to turn to the Savior. They like what they're doing. They know that turning to Jesus and living in sin doesn't go together. So they would rather keep their sin than turn to Christ. Yeah. I'm not saying that the way you go to heaven is to quit sinning. You're not, we couldn't quit sinning enough to get to heaven. Not even close. Right. But I am saying it's that love for sin that keeps some people from turning to the Savior. Right. They love their sin. The lust of the flesh. Then there's the lust of the eyes. That's the desire to have. That's covetousness. That's the passion to consume and to have and to get and to gain. One is the desire to do. One is the desire to have. A lot of people go to hell because they don't want to let go of what they've got or what they think they're going to get. Yes. But then there's the pride of life. That may be the worst of all has a lot of drunks and drug addicts and people living in sin and whoremongers and liars and just ne- living neck deep in the filth of this world and they're on their way to sin, on their way to hell because they like that and they don't want to be saved from it. Yeah. But then you've got that pride of life crowd. They really don't think they deserve to go to hell. Yeah. they're in the problem. Why would they turn to Jesus? Because it's a little bit beneath their dignity to think of repentance. It's a little bit beneath their dignity to say, hey, I got saved last night. I turned to Christ and I trusted Him and He saved me from my sins. Oh, my word, what sins could you possibly be guilty? You're a fine, upstanding citizen. How about pride? How about those lies that nobody knows you told? How about that envy that bubbles up in your heart, that jealousy, that backstabbing, the gossip? Those are sins of the Spirit, and they're just as evil and just as wicked as sins of the flesh. Yeah, no amens on that one. I love it when I get no amens. You know you light, lit somebody up when you get no amens. We think it's the people that live over in the red light district, the pool halls and the dance halls and the bar rooms and the brothels and... Those are the people who are on, on the way to hell fast. But us slick people, us religious, rich, community people, we couldn't go to hell. Yeah. The Lord needs us. Sure. Yeah. The Bible says for all have sin to come short of the glory of God. Right. All. That includes you. Includes your grandmother. Right. <laughs> people are alive right now on their way to hell, and they don't have to go. You you just don't ever know what God's doing. And sometimes in the ministry, you just have to try to preach the truth and just sow the seed and just leave it. It's hard to not be results-oriented. That'll drive you crazy and keep you awake at night, but you can't do that. My my first church I pastored was in Coleman, Alabama. And we started with 28 people in a little rented room in in, in town there. Knocking on door after, door after door after door after door after door. We had a special day one day. We had a friend day. A bunch of people came. We had a pretty significant number of people saved, and and we had some people that stayed. And and I, but I, I always sort of questioned how how good a day it really was. And man, it seemed like we should have been able to reach more of those people. And wonder what you know what we can do to make a difference. And so it was a year or two, might even been three years later. I'm visiting in this neighborhood. In our town, it was a government housing project. And I knocked on the door, and this guy comes to the door. He had a limp and he was kind of loud. And his name was Dufford House. All right? And you could hear him kind of dragging his foot to get to the door. He came to the door and he opened it up and he said, Hey! And I started talking to him. and I, and invited him to church, and then I got to the part about his soul, and I asked him if he was saved. he said, well, yeah, man, I got saved at your church on friend day. And I said, well, all right. Maybe things being done I don't even know about. Yeah. My dad worked for a man in a car dealership. He owned this Cadillac dealership in town, and he was the, the, he was the quintessential car guy. You know, now they all look like, you know, golf professionals. They, they don't look like they used to. This guy looked like a car man. Splashy's expensive sport coat and big diamond rings. He had a Cadillac medallion that he wore. It had big diamonds in it, and he looked just like Grandpa on the Munsters. (laughs) Man, this guy was slick, and he chewed giant cigars. All right. Well, he was dying, and my dad loved this guy, just loved him. Well, he had invited him to our first big day we had at that church. We had we averaged about fifty. Sixteen. and we had 180 88 i think on that day and, and there was a bunch of kids from the football team came we had a really great service a great speaker and there was 31 people got saved that day one of them who raised his hand and said i got saved today was mr bryant the man who owned the cadillac dealership and i just always thought to myself he, he had to have misunderstood something I, it just Mr. Bryant just threw his hand up there to play. I mean, he's trying to hustle us. <laughs> that's, kind of, that's kind of what I'm thinking in the back of my mind. When Mr. Bryant was dying, my dad went to see him to witness to him, make sure that he knew that he was saved, and, and dad did not sure. Yeah. And so when dad asked him about his soul, he said, Well, yeah, He said, I took care of that at your boy's church on friend day. You know, all you have to do is decide, I know that I need to be saved. And believe on the Savior. Call on the Savior. He'll save you. If there's any more to it than that, nobody's saved. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We're not preaching a shallow gospel to you tonight. We're telling you the whole story. You've got to turn to Jesus Christ in sincerity to save you from your sins. But I'm telling you, he'll do it. There might be one person in here tonight. There might be two. I don't know. It could be three or four. There might be somebody sitting in here tonight, and you know just as sure as I'm talking right now that you're not saved. You might mean well. You might be nice. You might be religious. You might pay your bills on time. You might do all the good things that you can do, but you know, you know, when it comes to this born-again talk, you've never been saved. I told you I started to preach when I was um, 13 years old and it was very serious to me from that day to this day. I haven't done everything right, but I've always cared about preaching and wanted the Lord to use me. And we started witnessing the kids at the school, me and a few friends of mine who were Christians and we had this little this uh, little survey that we'd take them through. And you know, at lunchtime or in some kind of a break or before school or after school we'd talk to them about their soul and I think something like 97 kids that year we were able to talk to about salvation and saw 97 of them profess faith in Christ at a public school in the year of 1980-1981. All right. Well, I say that only to say, for, the only reason to say that is that we were pretty zealous about it. We were trying to tell our friends about Christ, trying to get them to come to church, burdened about this thing called, about hell and the gospel. Because I'd surrendered to preach, I, I, I felt like, you know, probably some things I didn't need to do. And there was the homecoming dance was coming up. So I said, I just, man, I don't need to go to the dance. And, I, you know, it's easier to to play the Christ, good Christian card than to admit you can't dance, right? So, <laughs> so I wasn't going to go and... um the word got out, and always, just like a, every issue, it would eke out. Somebody would hear about it, and then I'd have to pay the piper. Somebody, every day, somebody else would have a question. I heard you thought, think this is wrong. Why is that wrong? I'd have to take the Bible. I'd have to show what the Bible says, and we'd have an argument. And then I'd hopefully try to win the argument. And if I lost the argument, I'd have to go back and learn some more. And then we'd come back and have it again, you know. Well, there's a girl named Paige Hawford. She was a tall girl. And she was, you know, a detractive girl on the drill team, pom-pom ministry and all that. So one day I'm, I'm walking down the ramps, so that like it was sort of an outdoor uh structure. He had classrooms, he had outdoor ramps and covered walkways and lockers, and I'm walking down the ramps, you know, going to my next class, and Paige and a gaggle of her little following little girls with her, came around the corner, and she yells out at me. So, hey, there's Dalton, the preacher, man. He's not going to... Why aren't you going to the dance? Are you going? (laughs) You know, and I thought to myself, I I can't say what I thought. (laughs) So, I said to myself, Self, don't ever have anything to do with that girl again. Don't speak to her again. She made you look bad. She's she's off my list. (laughs) She gets no more of this. I can't think of a person I went to school with in those days that I didn't talk to about the gospel, except Paige. I'm not trying to be dramatic. I'm telling you what happened. Okay? Paige, the next year, got killed in a car wreck, 10th grade. I don't know if Paige was saved. And I'm not saying that if Paige went to hell, it's my fault. But I am saying this I didn't tell her. That's what I'm saying. And I could have, but I didn't. So there's two groups of people in here ought to be motivated about hell. Saved people and people who aren't. If you're not sure you're saved tonight, the night to get that done. You can be saved tonight. Mm -hmm. And if you know you're saved, I just want to plead with you to start caring again about hell and souls and the gospel. We'll bow our heads together.